Welcome to the Arise Church Podcast. At Arise, we're a community of imperfect people, pursuing and experiencing a transformative relationship with Jesus and one another. For more information, you can find us online at ariseonline.org. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. That's not the most enthusiastic good morning after that video. (laughs) We'll pick up with that story here in just a little bit, but if you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter three. Mark is the second book in the New Testament. Chapter three is the third chapter in that book. So go ahead and make your way there. If you don't have a Bible, no problem. You'll find the words here on the screen in just one minute. But we are in week three of our Easier Said series. We've been talking about the fact that following Jesus is hard to do. Following Jesus is difficult. It's often easier said than done. The first week we talked about Matthew 18, and if someone sins against you or does something wrong against you, according to the Bible, according to the teachings of Jesus, how should you engage that process? Last week we looked at the life of Jesus and how he was focused on his true north, his Jerusalem, how he had an inner core of three people that he invested in, and how whenever he was tired, he would rest, and how God worked in mighty ways in the midst of that rest. And today, we're gonna look at something else in life that's a bit easier said than done when it comes to following Jesus. Now, the danger in the Western world is this, is that we try to paint following Jesus and becoming a Christian as something very attractive, and you say, hey, come on in, come on in, you're gonna love it, you're gonna love it, you're gonna love it, and then once they get in, you say, oh, by the way, there's this part of Scripture that says, take up your cross and deny yourself. So it's the old kind of bait and switch. And so here at Arise, we wanna be really honest about what it means to follow Christ. To follow Christ meaning to deny yourself, to be willing to take up your cross and follow him. And we're gonna be looking at one of those issues here today. But as we talk about the the reality that following Jesus is, is often hard to do, You may ask the question, then why do it at all? And I would answer that question with the question that we asked at the end of last week. And it was the simple question, is Jesus worth it? Is what God and what Jesus calls us to, is it worth it? And do we believe that his grace is sufficient? And it's worth it because God wants to use us as his agents of restoration and reconciliation in this world. God wants to use us to bring light and truth to a world that is broken and so desperately needs to hear it. God wants to use us to be revolutionary forces for good. And today, the subject subject we're talking about, it kind of stirs up all kinds of emotion and drags up all kinds of issues because it interacts and encounters some of our family systems some of our own experience, our political beliefs. And so because of that, as we dive into this issue and as we talk about what Jesus faced in Mark chapter three today, it's a difficult, hard, easier said than done issue. So Mark chapter three, beginning at verse uno. So Jesus coming out of chapter two has just had this confrontation with these religious leaders They've been kind of following him around, trying to catch him out and see where he's going to trip up so they can call him out on what he's done wrong. And so as we read chapter three, these religious leaders, these Pharisees are the they or the them that the text is referencing. So chapter three, verse one, again, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus 
to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath command comes up over and over again in the Torah. The Torah are the first five books of the Jewish Bible, the first five books of our Old Testament. Everybody say Torah. Torah, and at the center of the Jewish life in Jesus' day, at the center of the Jewish life in our day is the Torah and trying to keep the Torah. So the goal for a Jewish person in Jesus' day was to live the Torah, and Jesus said, I didn't come to get rid of the Torah, I came to show you what it looks like to put it on display, to live the Torah down to every last punctuation mark. And the Torah commanded one of its 613, yes, that's a real number, 613 commands was to observe the Sabbath, to do no work on the Sabbath. And now this raised all kinds of questions because depending on the rabbi, they would translate the Torah and the laws, these 613 laws, in different ways. Because one rabbi might say that this is work and this is not. But another rabbi would say, no, this is work, and this is not. So each rabbi had their own set, a different set of what the laws were, and what was work, and what was not. So each rabbi had their own set of rules, and these set of rules were called their yoke, their yoke. And there was this one rabbi that showed up and said, my yoke is easy. It's interesting. He said, my yoke is easy. It's not about doing My yoke is about being. My yoke is about receiving. So every rabbi had their own yoke. And to follow a rabbi meant that you would follow their yoke. So if you were a young Jewish boy being raised in first century Israel, you would look around at the rabbis and you would examine their independent, their individual particular set of rules, their yoke. And you say, hey, I agree with them, therefore I want to be their follower. I want to take on their yoke. Now this is an actual yoke. When Jesus spoke about a yoke here, he spoke about it in a metaphorical sense, but in a literal sense, a yoke would be placed around the neck of two oxen or donkeys or whatever to connect them, to keep them in line as they move forward in whatever task they were working on, if they were pulling a plow, if they were pulling a wagon or a cart of some sort, so to keep them aligned and to keep them pulling toward the same goal. So that's in a literal sense. So in a figurative sense, when Jesus speaks about the yoke, he's kind of talking about the same thing. So when you were a rabbi and you had your yoke and you had your followers, this yoke would keep you in alignment, would keep you and all of your followers in alignment and allow you to press on toward the same goal. The problem was that the yokes of these rabbis were often not grounded in scripture, but they were grounded or they were founded out of their own preference. And so because of this, their interpretations of the Torah and of the Torah laws often contradicted one another. And we see one of these instances here in Mark chapter three. Because the question came about of what do you do when the, when the, 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 um, the Torah commands that you save life wherever life needs to be saved and protected, but also you observe the Sabbath and you do no work on the Sabbath. So the rabbis would pose this hypothetical question. What happens whenever your donkey falls into a hole on the Sabbath? A question that plagues us each and every day, I'm sure. You're thinking, if I only had a nickel for every time I was asked that question. But they would pose this question because of this. The Torah commands that you are to protect and you are to, to save life wherever life needs protecting. But 
If you were to reach into that hole and you were to pull that donkey out, you are doing work on the Sabbath. So what do you do when these, these Torah rules, these laws of the Old Testament exist in the same place at the same time? Because you have a command to protect life, you have a command to observe the Sabbath. And so what they would do is they would do something, they would say, let we, they would choose which law was weightier and which law was lighter, and they would do the weightier thing. In our world today, we call this ethics. What do you do when there's two circumstances in your life that come together in the same place at the same time? They seem to contradict each other. How do you respond to that? So some rabbis in Jesus' day said, you always save life no matter what. You always save life no matter what, even if it means breaking the Sabbath. Other rabbis would say, no, 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 no. You always observe the Sabbath, even if it means letting someone or something die. So Jesus wades into this discussion right here in Mark chapter three. It's one of the eight great debates of Jesus' time, and it's an incredibly controversial issue. Let's see why. Verse number two. And they, these are the Pharisees, the religious leaders, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that what? So that they might accuse him. So what will Jesus do? Because if he heals this man, he's doing work on the Sabbath and he's not observing the Sabbath and he's breaking that law. But if he does, doesn't, then he's not protecting life. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here, come here. Is Jesus looking for a row? Is he creating a controversy here? Yes, yes he is. And some of your interpretations may say, not come here, but stand up. Because you have to picture the scene here. This man is most likely on a mat. He's outside of the synagogue. He's begging for money. This is the way that he sustains his life. You have these religious leaders in a circle around this man, looking down on this man, casting their judgments Upon him, And what does Jesus say? Come here. He says, stand up. Because it's a lot easier to judge someone when you're able to look down on them. To speak about them in a hypothetical kind of metaphorical sense. But whenever you stand up and you look someone face to face, flesh to flesh, eye to eye, it becomes real. And this is what Jesus is doing here by telling this man, stand up. And then look what he does. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? Or to, or to do harm, to save life, or to kill. It's like a little bit of like spiritual kung fu here. Jesus kind of puts them in a headlock here. Because notice how he turns the narrative. It's no longer about Sabbath keeping and healing. He simply says, stand up, and now let me ask you a question. And I don't want you to answer me. I want you to answer him. You're now looking him eye to eye, face to face. Is it lawful to do what is good or what is evil? To heal or to kill? So he changes the story. He said it's not about keeping the Sabbath. It's about good and evil, black and white. He places flesh and blood in front of their eyes and he exposes their hearts and he exposes the sickness of their yokes and their hearts are exposed, their true motivations are on full display, and they are angry, they are mad. What did they do? It says, but they were what? Silent. 
because they have this kingdom. They have this system. They have this religious system, this denomination that keeps them at a level where they are the oppressors, where they are always the ones at the top. And Jesus comes in and he steps into their world and he begins to challenge every system that their yokes, that their beliefs, that everything that they believe and how they exist is based on. He gets them in a corner. They don't like it. They're so hard-hearted to this man in flesh and blood that is standing up in front of them that they won't even answer the most basic question, which is better, to heal or not? But they stood silent. Verse five, and he looked around at them with anger. He looked around at at them with anger. And I love the language here because he's not talking to one person. He says he doesn't look at him. He doesn't look at a group of them. He says he looks around at them. Jesus is surrounded by these religious people who become so hardened that they won't allow him to heal this man. He says he looked at them with anger. Today, I wanna talk about a Jesus who gets angry. Today, I wanna talk about a God who gets angry. And the difficulty is, is that many of us grew up with this kind of flannel graph Jesus. We have this blonde-haired, Clairold, Farrah Fawcett-haired picture of Jesus holding his little white lamb and his white bathrobe with no dirt on it. Well, today I wanna talk about the other Jesus. I wanna talk about the real Jesus. I wanna talk about a Jesus and a God who gets angry. Now, the Greek word here used for angry in Matthew chapter, or Mark chapter three is this Greek word you can see here on the screen, orge. Everybody say orge. It's where we get our English word ogre. I don't know, I just made that up. It just sounded right, but we'll go with it. That's what most pastors do anyway. Uh, orge. Now, Aristotle, whenever he talked about the etymology of this word, whenever he's discussing this word, he said it's an ancient Greek word that means grief or desire mixed with grief. Orge is what happens when desire and grief meet. So what Jesus is saying here, this anger that he has, is that he desires that they would get it. He wants them to get it. But because they don't, he has grief. And Jesus is angry. It's the kind of like, ah, you're breaking my heart kind of anger. And also this Greek word orge is in the aorist tense. And if you took Greek, it'll make you cringe just hearing that phrase. I had five years of Greek, and every time I hear it, I cringe because it's like the most difficult kind of tense to understand. But it's in the aorist tense, which I know you're very excited about this morning, but it's important. And here's why it's important. Because this kind of anger that Jesus has here is not this kind of low-grade, simmering anger, okay? It's not this kind of anger that he's carrying around from place to place, a kind of anger that is birthed out of some kind of petty or insignificant personal attack. It is an anger that comes about in a moment, that comes about because of a specific situation that is temporary and then is gone, So Jesus here is angry. He sees this scene. He sees this injustice. He sees this system that is oppressive, and he responds in anger. So today I want to talk about a God who gets angry. Keep your finger in Mark chapter 3. Go left in your Bible to the book of Amos in the Old Testament. Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. 
So throughout scripture, we find this divine anger, and I wanna take a moment for us to reflect on this. Because what happens often is in our attempts to articulate or to kind of betray this God of love, we leave out a God who gets angry, a God that has wrath, God that has judgment. And so today I wanna present this simple idea that if you have a God of love, you also are going to inevitably have a God who gets angry, and I wanna show you why. Amos chapter five, verse 21, you have God speaking through this prophet Amos to whom? Who is his audience? His audience are the religious people of his day. His audience are the religious leaders in Israel. He's talking to them about their rituals. He's talking to them about the religious services. And what does he say? Amos 5, 21. Get ready. I hate I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Tell us how you really feel, God. This word for despise is the Hebrew word you see here on the screen, ma'as. It means to, to reject, to be fed up, to be exhausted, to say enough. So God here is saying in this, I despise, ma'as, I've had enough. I'm exhausted. I'm fed up with it. I can't take it anymore. God has a similar rant in the book of Isaiah when he says, your religious festivals and services and gatherings, they're so fake. They're so funny. They make me sick. I want to vomit. And then he says, in the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But what? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness, like an ever-flowing stream. In a sense to Israel, through the prophet Amos, God saying, stop playing church and start being the church. Because your songs and your words and your rituals are meaningless and I'm fed up. I hate them. But he says, what? Let justice roll. Why is God so angry? What's got God cranked up to 11 here in Amos 5? Turn to chapter 8, verse 4. Flip to the right, three chapters. This whole book of Amos is about a God who gets angry. But it's not a God who's angry at unbelievers. It's a God who's angry at believers. Why is God so worked up? He tells us in chapter eight, hear this, you who what? Trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain in the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff, sweepings, dirt of the wheat. Why is God angry? He's angry because these religious people who ignore the needy, who create systems to oppress the needy, who are so obsessed with becoming wealthy that they're willing to sweep up the chaff, the dirt off of the floor into their bags of wheat to make them weigh a little bit more so they can get more money, knowing that there are needy, oppressed, poverty-stricken people out there that are starving, and they don't care that these bags are full of dirt because they're so hungry that they're willing to buy it. And this whole Sabbath idea comes up here. God who creates this Sabbath for man to have a time each week for rest. 
These people are saying, well, okay, when can the Sabbath just get over so I can go out and I can work again and I can make more money and I can continue to oppress the poor? This is why God gets angry. He says, stop singing your songs. Stop having your festivals, you hypocrites. You make me sick. It's about a God who sees injustice and says, that is wrong. When we talk about a God who gets angry, we have to ask this question. Which is more disturbing? Which is more disturbing, a God who gets angry or a God who can look down at brokenness, at injustice, at oppression, at exploitation, and not get angry? Which is more disturbing? I tend to think it's this. So you have God who's looking down, sees his people who are not only neglecting but taking advantage of these broken, hurting people. Which is more disturbing, a God who gets angry or a God who can see all that and say, huh, it's no big deal. A God who can look down and see war, who can see violence, who can see oppression, who can see rape and say, no, that's no big deal. Just keep going with your religious services. Keep bringing me your offerings and we're all good. If you find yourself being disturbed by the idea of a God who gets angry, I would challenge you to find yourself getting far more disturbed by a God, or far more disturbed and being able to imagine a God who can see injustice and not get angry. There's this divine anger that we see in Scripture, that we see in Mark chapter 3 with Jesus, where God says, this is not right. Where Jesus stands before this man and says, this is not right. This man needs to be healed. And there's this religious system, these people who want to prevent it. Flip back to Mark chapter 3. The question we have to ask now is, what does Jesus do with his anger? Or what does Jesus' anger lead to? Now, I'm just like you, believe it or not. I get angry. And anger in my life is the most puzzling thing. Now, I'm a pretty even-keeled guy. I don't get super worked up about a lot of different things. But there is one thing in my life that has been a constant source of anger since I was a child. And that is the University of Texas football. It runs deep in my family. We bleed burnt orange. And last Saturday night, not last night, but the week before, the University of Texas traveled to the University of Southern California to play a football game. They were huge underdogs. I kind of walked in having no expectation. But as the game went on, Texas kept up and my hopes began to build. And that old pride that I had in my Longhorns began to swell. And a game, this is, Texas is unranked. The Trojans are the number four team in the nation. It went to overtime. They both scored a touchdown in overtime. It went to double overtime, and the Longhorns lost in a last-second field goal. My poor wife, at almost midnight last week, is sitting in the living room with me. I don't say a word. I don't look at her. I stand up from my chair. I walk up to my bedroom. I close the door, and I'm standing at the foot of my bed. This guy is pretty even-keeled most of the week, and I have this indescribable anger in my soul in this moment. And I don't even know what to do with it, okay? Like I'm just like looking around the room and I look down on the bed and there are two hangers laying on my bed. These are the two hangers. And so in this moment of rage, 
I re- reach down, and in a great feat of strength, I break these two hangers. I scare my family so much when it comes to Longhorn football. The next morning, um, I came home, and my son, Colton, knew that they lost, and he came to me, and he had his eyes closed. He said, Dad, I don't want to talk about the game, but was it close? That's all I want to know. <laughs> and I patted him on the head, and I said, yes, son, it was close. But I have this anger so much that I'll break hangers. Now let's get vulnerable for a, mem- for a moment here. Do you ever find yourself so angry that you scare yourself? Raise your hand, anybody willing to be vulnerable? No, just me, you're all a bunch of liars. Okay, put your hands down. Have you ever in a moment gotten so angry that you've said something out loud and you say, dear God, did that just come out of my mouth? I can't believe I just said that. All right, we're getting some traction here. Have you ever found yourself so angry that you've broken something and you've been holding, you're holding that broken thing in your hand and said, did I really just do that? Anyone out there? Thank you. If you're sitting next to your spouse and they're lying, raise their hand for them. <laughs> What's amazing about anger is you can find someone who is tired, who is exhausted, who has no energy left, and you give them something to be angry about, and there's like this nuclear energy that comes about in their life that allows them to leap tall buildings or break hangers, right? It can kind of bring them back to life because anger is this rocket fuel of energy. It can give you this unbelievable energy, this power from nothing. And there's a question in Mark chapter three. When Jesus feels this orge, this anger, what does he do with it? The next verse there on the screen, and he looked around at them with anger, orge, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Jesus' anger always leads to healing and restoration. Jesus' anger always leads to healing and restoration. But notice what Jesus doesn't do here. Jesus doesn't debate the religious leaders about Scripture. Jesus doesn't get into a debate with them about the Torah. You don't see this back and forth. He tells this man to stand up, and he heals, and he restores this broken man. He stops talking, and he acts. Jesus' anger always leads to healing and restoration. His orge leads to peace and justice. What does your anger lead to? Does your anger increase the peace? Does your anger bring about justice? Does your anger lead to healing and restoration? In Mark 3, we see Jesus and his anger, and he channels it into a specific act of healing. And what this tells us is that the problem isn't our anger. The problem is what our anger is towards, and my problem is what our anger leads to. The problem isn't our anger. The problem is what we do with it. What works you up? What gets you all cranked up inside? When you think about that, allow that, allow the Spirit to expose the motives of your heart because those things that incite us, those things that make us angry are the things that we're truly, deeply convicted about. So we find this divine anger throughout all of Scripture 
And we find it throughout scripture and we find it being channeled in the right direction. Flip to the right in your Bible to Galatians chapter five. Galatians chapter five. In Galatians five, we step into this giant controversy of Paul's day. Because you have the Apostle Paul who is going from village to village, city to city, port to port, sharing the message of Jesus, this message of grace, this message of mercy and love, this unmerited favor of God. And then what happens? You have these religious people, these super spiritual people. So in Mark 3, you've got these people, these Pharisees who are fixated on religious systems. And then in Galatians 5, you've got these people who are kind of like, we'll just call them hyper-spiritual people who are fixated on spirituality and kind of taking salvation and following Jesus a step beyond what God calls us to. Because what happens in Galatians 5 is Paul's traveling around. He's telling about God's love. He's telling about God's grace and mercy. These people follow after him and they come about and they, they are these people that believe that in order to be saved, you have to be circumcised. And so they follow after Paul and they say, oh, Paul, he, he came here and he told you about God and he told you about Jesus. That's great. That's great. Um, have you been circumcised? No. Well, you know, in order to be a Christian, you have to do, you have to do all this Jewish stuff too. So these guys are essentially coming to these 40-year-old men and saying, oh, you want to be a Christian? That's great. Have you been circumcised? No. Well, we're going to have to see you at the clinic on Tuesday. Bill's got a little procedure he wants to do with you guys. And what happens here is Paul gets furious. And if you read Galatians 5, 1 through the end of the chapter, Paul begins to work up this head of steam in his anger at what these people are doing by coming behind him and teaching this Jesus plus gospel. Because Paul's saying, Jesus is enough, and these people are saying, well, no, 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 no. It's Jesus plus this, this, and this. And we see Paul's orge, his anger in verse 12, when he says this. I love it. I wish those who unsettle you, these agitators, these who are coming behind me, would just go the whole way and emasculate themselves. He's like, oh, I'm so angry with them. I just wish they would cut it off. Is Paul angry? Is Paul angry? Yes. yes. The question is, what does he do with that anger? He lets it out in verse 12, kind of says, from the flesh, I wish this is what they would do. He steps back in verse 13. He says this, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Go back to verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us, what, free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to what? A yoke of slavery. These guys that are coming behind me and teaching this Jesus plus gospel, they're trying to put a yoke on you. A yoke of what? A yoke of slavery. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So what does Paul do with his anger? Paul's anger always leads to his mission, which is delivering a message of freedom. Paul's anger leads him to deliver a message of freedom, a message that he would give his life for, a message that he would die for. This anger fuels his, miss, or his mission to deliver a message of freedom to who? To the oppressed. You know, I love to talk about this idea of vocation. What is, what is our calling in life? What should we do? And often people ask the question when they're talking about vocation is what is that thing in your life that gives you joy? What is that thing in your life that gives you pleasure? What is that thing in your life that makes you happy? And in that answer, you can find your calling. You can find your vocation. However, maybe there's another question that we should ask in light of this text. What makes you angry? 
What leaves you unsettled? What is that thing in this world that you see and you say, that is wrong? Some people call this the holy discontent. You just see that and say, my spirit can't settle with that. I can't go to bed at night knowing that that exists. Somebody needs to do something. And maybe the spirit is tapping on your shoulder today saying, hey, that somebody is you. Put that orge, I put that anger in your life for a reason. Maybe you're a college student and you have a hypothetical haunting sense that maybe someday you ought to get a job. When you consider what should I do with my life, instead of asking what is that thing that makes me happy, what is that thing that brings me peace and pleasure and joy and all rainbows and sunshines and unicorns, instead of asking that question, maybe you should ask what makes me angry? And in that answer, maybe that's what God's calling you to. Instead of what do I love, what makes me angry? And in that answer, you say, someone needs to fix that. I wanna show some stats here today as we kind of wind down. And as we look at these statistics, I want you to ask yourself this question. Does this make me angry? Am I okay with this? First slide, 2.4 billion people in the world. One third of the population like basic sanitation facilities. Does that make you angry? Next slide. There are around 800 homeless children, homeless children in Sioux Falls. Over 1 billion children out of 1.9 billion live in poverty, more than one out of two children. And this is not the kind of poverty and not having wealth or not having abundance. This is the kind of poverty that means you could die soon. Does that make you angry? Next slide. More than 800 million people around the world go to bed hungry every day. 300 million are children. How does that sit with you? Next slide. Every 3.6 seconds, someone dies of hunger, and the large majority are children under the age of five. One, two, three. One, two, Three, does that make you angry? Next slide. A woman in North America has a one in 3,700 chance of dying giving birth. A woman in Sub-Saharan Africa has a one in 16 chance of dying giving birth. Over two million children are exploited in the global commercial trade. Does that make you angry? Human trafficking generates over $150 billion a year and is one of the fastest growing industries in the world. Does that make you angry? One in three or more of girls in the Native American population will be sexually assaulted. Those are statistics here in South Dakota. Next slide. There are 45 million people living as slaves now, more than at any other time in human history. We have to stop talking about slavery as a then issue and acknowledge that slavery is a now issue. One in every four slaves is a child. So if there are 45 million slaves in the world, one in every four, that means there are about 11.25 million children in slavery around the world today. Next slide. 
Sub-Saharan Africa, one in 140 people are slaves. Next slide. We live in a world where people get angry, where people break hangers about the things that don't matter and don't get angry about the things that do matter. There's a fascinating book called The Enigma of Anger. The author Garrett Keezer said this, and you can see the quote here on the screen. His, speaking of Jesus, is the zeal of an ego identified with something larger than itself. So when he was on earth, his identity was wrapped up in something that wasn't about him, it was larger than himself. He is not incensed over some personal insult, but a communal sacrilege, the that is wrong feeling, which he feels bound to take personally. Okay, so you're angry. The question is, what do you do with that anger? Are you gonna sit with it? Are you gonna let time pass? In the busyness of your schedule, relationships dilute that anger. Are you gonna do something with it? Jesus' anger leads to healing and restoration. Paul's anger leads him to deliver a message of freedom to the oppressed. Maybe you find yourself like me with absurd anger, with this anger that comes out of nowhere and is just ridiculous when you step out of the moment and you really examine it. Because the truth is some people are looking for a fight because they aren't in one. I broke a hanger because I'm not in a fight. Some people are looking for a fight because they aren't in one. And my observation is that people who are in relationship and who are meeting needs in a real practical way and have a larger picture of what's really going on in the world have a sense of perspective that frees them from petty and irrational minor offenses. Notice that Jesus doesn't spend time complaining about the religious people. He doesn't really even spend time dialoguing with them. But what does he do? He turns from this nonsense over here and he focuses on this person who needs healing and needs restoration. Some people today are looking for a fight because they aren't in one. But today I wanna talk to someone and I want you to hear from someone who is. So this time I wanna invite Desiree, Jansen up to the stage. There she is. Or if you're cool like me, you get to call her Des. But Desiree, everybody give Desiree a hand. Hey, Des. Hi. Thank you. Did I'm choosing the higher stool so I can look down on you. Okay, good. Like yeah. the Pharisees. <laughs> yeah. So thanks for being here with us. Um, the question I want to ask you just to get us started here is, what do you do? Um, my, so my job, my eight to noon part-time, <laughs> is um, I work for the Sioux Falls School District. I'm, uh, my title is a Native American liaison. So a uh, majority of my work is keeping track of the Native American kids, finding out why they're not in school, um, absenteeism issues, stuff like that. But the other portion of what I do is um, I lead groups of students at eight at a time in um, suicide prevention, at-risk students, so not necessarily only Native American kids, but at-risk kids um, based on their absenteeism, um, and just talk about suicide prevention and um, drug and alcohol abuse and uh, goal setting and start getting them to think about their future and getting, awesome. you know, hope. So yeah. yeah, so why do you do it? 
Like, what is the thing that, like, stirred in your heart and sparked your spirit, saying this is something that I need to engage and get involved in? Yeah. Uh, well, last year I was an ELL liaison, so I worked with the immigrant, with the immigrant and uh, refugee population last year. And I had a door open for me that was pretty obvious that I was like, okay, I need to step into this new arena and, and figure this out. So I was asked to do this training for at-risk youth. And um, I've always kind of felt a connection to the Native American community mm-hmm. um, through, you know, my family. My, you know, my dad was a Native American artist. And so we grew up in kind of the atmosphere um, but yeah, I, last year I worked at Hawthorne Elementary School and I saw the g- huge need in one school alone. Mm. And so this year I get to work with all the high school and middle schools in the district. And so it's just kind of been an eye-opening experience. So you told me a statistic when we chatted last week about the number of Native American kids that enter ninth grade and the number that actually finish. What was that statistic? Yeah. Um, it's heartbreaking and, you know, maddening. Um, it's between 19 and 37% of Native American kids go from freshman to senior. So we're, we're, we're missing that huge chunk of kids. That's not even graduating. That's getting to senior year of high school. 19 to 37% of our Native kids. And we have over 2,000 in our in our area alone, in our Sioux Falls School District alone. So 2,000 kids, that's like Lincoln High School. An entire high school of kids are not even reaching senior year. So 63 to 81% of kids will not even make it to their, their right. senior year. Yeah. So tell us about some of the things that you see in your work. So what are some of those situations that you encounter? Yeah. Um, I, I get to, I get the honor of experiencing some really beautiful experiences, um, which are difficult still, yet so incredibly, you know, different from my own experience. But for example, um, I get to meet kids that I get to go to their home and find out why they're not at school today. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that they have to stay at home to babysit because dad's in jail or both parents are working. And so they're responsible for their younger sibling or um, they're 17 now and they can work. So they're forced to provide income for their family. So it's, it's, it's beautiful to me to see like that kind of responsibility that they're taking on, but also hard um, at an education level. Um, but then I get to see the opposite side of the spectrum too, where um, <laughs> it's hard for me to share these stories yeah. of, yeah. I'm glad, though, that I'm not sensitive to these things, um, <laughs> and I never hope to become insensitive to it. Um, yeah. But, um, for instance, there was a, a child that came to school, um, and then the attendance office calls up to the classroom and says, um, your mom's on the phone, and he looks kind of terrified of the fact, and um, they have an exchange on the phone, and he goes, uh, he goes back to his desk crying. Hmm. Yeah, the teacher, um, whew, let me get through the story. Uh, the teacher calls him down to the office. And I was on this uh, response team last year at Hawthorne Elementary. 
And the teacher calls him down into the counseling office and we all kind of gather there and he explains that his mom just told him or accused him of stealing $5 from her and um, that she needed it for gas money. Well, we all knew that it wasn't intended for gas um, and that he is worthless, uh-huh. a liar, and should, <laughs> should have never been bored. So... Uh, Heartbreaking, heartbreaking story after story like that. Um, And so like these kids are coming, forced to come to school in, out of environments like this, so. And they're just experiencing what we talked a little bit the other day of just systemic brokenness in their culture. And they, a lot of times I imagine just kind of give in to the idea of like, well, this is my fate, this is my future. And you said something so powerful the other day that we hear in a cliche sense, but I don't think we really hear it with our heart, is it just takes one adult in their life to change the child. And it's, it's changing that child, and it's making a difference there, but that child will go on to marry. That child will go on to have children and their children. And so when you t- we talk about rooting this out at a systemic level, telling kids that, no, you do matter. You yeah. do have worth. You do have value. It takes one person. It does. And there was this um, quote that I heard the other day from a principal. She said, Kids who get love at home go to school to learn. Kids who don't go to school for love. It's just mind-blowing. But it's so true. It's so true. That's what they're looking for in school if they're not receiving it at home. And for a majority of the students that I interact with, that's exactly what they're seeking. Wow. Mm -hmm. So why should our people get involved? And if they want to get involved, what's their next step? Um, Lutheran Social Services has this beautiful program. It's It's a mentoring program. And so... You would get to, and we are partnering with um, Lutheran Social Services. We're gonna, um, I'll be the contact person, so you can meet me afterwards in a table out um, in, the, in the gym um, or in the cafeteria. And what, they do, what you do as a mentor is meet with these students at an age level of your choice, at a school of your choice, which is most convenient for you if you prefer, um, and you meet with a student one hour a week during their lunch break to start developing that relationship with them. And the, the impact that you would have on this child is, um, is this. Basically, it's, it's hard for us maybe to imagine that they, there is not one adult in this child's life that they can trust. Not one, besides their teacher who is so overloaded with yeah. students that they cannot possibly provide the amount of attention and love that, that this child needs. So as a mentor, um, when you are reliable, when you show love, when you show that they are worth your time, this changes everything in this child's world. And if you work on a high school level, you can connect with um, these students by bringing them to school if their parents are, you know, not up or not home or whatever it may be. So there's this huge opportunity for you to connect with a child, with a student, and we're not talking, not necessarily talking about these, like, you know, super at-risk kids either that have, like, you know, gang affiliation mm-hmm. or something, just to, like, kind of calm any nerves that you may have about connecting with a child. It's, we're talking about the, the kids that may be stuck in the middle, where they're not necessarily sh- seen as a leader in their school, but, and they're also not on their way to JDC. They're right in the middle where they might just have that one occurrence at home or with a friend, um, meeting a new friend that steers them off in the wrong direction to go the wrong way. 
but as a mentor, you can lead that, you know, that life-changing role in their life that just steers them on the right, the right path, and yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you, Des. Everybody give Des a round of applause. That's awesome. So she'll be available out in the uh, commons area after we're done here today. So go chat with her. There will be other people like John mentioned earlier. But the question now as we move into kind of a moment of reflection for us is, what are you going to do with that anger? And at some point in your life, you're going to look back and you're going to examine the wake that you left behind. And what's going to be in that wake? Is it going to be a wake of broken hangers? A wake of things that don't really matter? of expending energy and your anger in directions and areas that at the end of the day are meaningless? Or are you gonna look back and because of the grace of God and because of the power of God in your life, are you gonna look back at your life and see a wake of healing, of restoration, of faithfulness to deliver a message of freedom? So where you are right now, just bow your head, close your eyes as the Worship team comes back up in this moment. We're just gonna create a space and a time in this moment for you to be with God. You've heard a lot today. We threw a lot of statistics your way. But I want you to ask, does that make you angry? Is there anything that you heard today that you say, that is wrong, that can't stand while I'm alive? And if so, How are you gonna channel that anger? That God-given divine anger for the sake of healing, for the sake of restoration, for the message of freedom that God would have you to deliver. So God, right now in the coming moments, we wanna hear from you and we want to ask you to speak truth into our hearts, God, to expose the motives of your heart. Lord, we invite the spirit into our space right now God, as we examine where we get angry, as we examine where we spend our time and our energies, God, pray that you would redirect that. God, I pray that your heart, you would stir our hearts for an affection for you, and that in that affection and in our love for you, God, that we would become angry about these things. God, and that we would be people who would live on purpose and with purpose to be agents of reconciliation and restoration to this world. So God, As we sit quietly now, speak to us.